The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Chinese Whispers with me, Cindy Yu. Every episode I'll be talking to journalists, experts and long-time China watchers about the latest in Chinese politics, society and more. There'll be a smattering of history to catch you up on the background knowledge and some context as well. How do the Chinese see these issues? In the last four decades, hundreds of millions of Chinese have moved into cities. Today, two-thirds of the country live in cities, compared to just one-third in 1985, and many of these are urban centres with tens of millions of people, megacities that many in the West have never even heard of. On this episode, I'd like to take a look at urban life in China, so new to so much of the population. I'm joined by Austin Williams, who is an architect-turned-journalist and author of two books on Chinese architecture. What is life like for pe- people living in these dense city centres? Will they prefer a closer relationship with nature? And what about the housing slump discussed so recently on this podcast and its impact on urban communities? Austin, welcome to Chinese Whispers. So Austin, to start with, I'd like to paint a picture for listeners of what life is like in these urban areas. It's also partly because that's what I know best, because I was born in Nanjing, which is a city of nine million people, a tier two city in the Chinese communist tiering system. So can we start by looking at how they live? So the accommodation, the residential compounds, the xiaoqu of Chinese cities. I think they'll be quite alien to Brits who are used to living maybe in semi-detached houses or terraced housing or cul-de-sacs, that kind of stuff. So can you explain what, what is a xiaoqu, what is a residential compound? Well, just to say, I think it's similar in some respects to walled communities in the UK, but different. Yeah? So they're not necessarily posh and affluent. Mm. They're normally kind of fairly bog standard and even house migrant workers. But effectively, they are walled encampments, which basically in the old days used to be kind of maybe single two-story houses, but now are high-rise. So you can maybe get, I don't know, maybe a 100 tower blocks, 15 stories high, but within a walled area with two gateways manned by a security guard that everybody ignores, uh, <laughs> that you can walk into. It contains then, you know, landscaping, maybe up to 50% landscaping. It's actually kind of quite nice little areas. And they have a little shop and they'll have uh, community play areas for children and these blocks and you'll you'll go to your number 65B block and lock yourself away. So they are kind of contained areas. And you've seen it, I mean, maybe people have seen it on the uh, COVID footage, you know, where the enclosure is not so much the, the building, but the actual walled area. Under COVID, under the strength of COVID, in the early days, especially in Shanghai, they were locking you into your actual apartment. Yes, you were actually taping up the door, locking it shut, you weren't allowed to come out, and it was monitored, so if you did actually come out for too long, then they'd send the boys around. But in general, you're now still allowed to maybe waltz around in the gardens, uh, as long as you're kind of uh, keeping your social distancing and keeping your face mask on, but you can't go beyond. That's what the barriers were set up. And they're private companies, private ward compounds. So it's not, you know, as if the government is making everyone live in these places. You buy a flat according to your house builder that you want to live in their compound, you want to live with their aesthetics and their landscaping and all this. Yeah, but they've pushed it. So about five years ago, they were pushing to get rid of these compounds because it's kind of 
blocking, you know, so the, the grid system within China is, again, alien to the UK. So rather than kind of a nice vernacular, bouncy, shapey kind of uh, curved roads, you have these very straight, narrow avenues and streets. And within those blocks, very large blocks, you have single compounds. And obviously that then doesn't help traffic flow. It doesn't help kind of people being able to take shortcuts because you can't do it. So mm. basically the government is basically saying we should do away with compounds. This is what they said five years ago. Now that hasn't really come to fruition because there's too many of them and it's too difficult to do. Second thing to say is that within those compounds, you still have, you know, the old Communist Party member, the old Communist Party setup. So there's always a representative in there who is making sure that the community when they form their community groups whether it's around ping pong tables or knitting or tai chi or whatever it might be those community groups don't get too above themselves that they still have to relate to the communist party official who will stand there and tell them you know what is appropriate and report back if too many people are organizing independently so yeah. you know it's still it's still china after no all. no of course yeah. and that and that's the kind of neighborhood committee that we hear exactly. so much about during the lockdowns yeah, isn't it yeah, yeah. they're not quite party members they might be but they're not necessarily well, lots and they're of people, not police people either yeah well lots of people ignore them do you know what i mean and i, and I think <laughs> that there's a lot of they're like the um, neighbourhood busybodies, almost. I mean, only some people would go on the neighbourhood watch, I think. Yeah, but it's like, it's like the security guards, I was saying, the wardens at the entrance to the compound. You know, there's a very interesting thing about China, which is that, you know, you imagine it's a... Well, it is a one-party state. It's kind of very officious. But then when ordinary people come across ordinary warders and they tell you to stop... People ignore them. You know, when you go onto a tube station and they say, put your bag through a scanning machine, they just ignore them and walk straight through. So there's a contempt for very local kind of authority, which actually is quite interesting. Yeah. And just on the residential compound, then, they're also quite vertical living, as you've mentioned. You know, you have very high-rise buildings here. What does that do to a community? Because is it harder to have a community when your neighbours are not side-by-side, but also up and down? Well, it's hard because... When you think about the rapidity of China's urbanization, yes, it's as you've mentioned, it's been 40 years, right? It's been since 1970, 78. So at that point in time, probably the figures are disputed, but maybe 11, 15, 18% were urban. Mm-hmm. Now it's 68% urban. Mm-hmm. So in 40 years, it's been a transformation. 500 million people urbanized. Moving from village life on the ground, you know, tilling your crops and all the rest of it, to being put on a 25th floor of a, of a tower block. People may remember that happened in the 1960s in this country, that lots of kind of pensioners were suddenly kind of thrown up in the air. <laughs> and that can destabilise communities, destabilise, you know, your sense of place and all the rest of it. In China, there's a lot of ground living. So mm-hmm. even those people who live in high-rise buildings will come downstairs and you'll find lots of people shelling nuts or, you know, whatever, doing small-scale business to make an extra bob or two and trying to create that certain sense of communitarian living. But I think the other thing to say is is that one thing which struck me about China, this may be going off track, but I felt that China, rather than being this kind of wonderful communal lifestyle, which I was imagining when Mm. I went there 10 years ago, it's actually, it's almost like as if Ayn Rand had created a country, then China would be it. There's very much kind of a self defense mechanism so Mm. community life survives for as long as community is important but really it's about the family and your nearest and dearest and that's what you protect yeah i I think that's definitely you know right for a lot of people that i know where rules are there to be applying to other people but not when your family's own interests are at, at stake one related part of that is the whole phenomenon of chai tian the whole phenomenon of demolitions that happened because you'll you'll be able to explain this much better than i will but i remember growing up in in 90s and noughties china and that word chai demolish was just everywhere 
why did that happen? Was it just old buildings needed to be got rid of to make way for these big high rises? Or is it things that needed to be built afresh altogether? Yeah, it's, it's called urbanisation. You know, as uh, somebody once said, you have to break some eggs. So I think that ultimately, again, I don't want to be too blasé about it, because we often see China as being fairly authoritarian and wanton in its destruction. But you look back at post-war reconstruction in the, in the West, or even if you go back 120 years in, in America, you see that a lot of the same kind of things happened. Mm. You know, people were forcibly removed, areas were demolished, and new areas were, re- were created. In China, it's happened at a much faster pace, in much more in our conscious lifetime, so you know, we can reflect on it. But effectively, the demolition of old buildings means that you take down those you know, pretty crappy buildings, and you're building now, as we say, 25-storey, maybe even higher, high-rise concrete, mm. brand-new buildings. That old statistic, which was that there's more concrete used in China between 2010 and 2015 than in the entire history of America. Right, so there's, is that they, true? I think it possibly is. There's wow. probably is. as much steel reinforcement have gone into that concrete as well. Uh, right, so there's an awful lot of, you know, I mean, it's a huge country, huge cities. As you're talking about, a, a second tier, third tier city can be 7 million people. First tier can be 25 million people. So these are, you know, huge areas which have rapidly developed in no time at all. And I think that it's important to recognise that the necessity to demolish and create mm. is kind of fundamentally important. Yeah. If you've ever seen the film The Chinese Mayor, which is a stupendous uh, film, it's one of the first fly-in-the-wall documentaries by a guy who generally forgot he was being filmed. It's about the mayor up in the, the north northern regions of, I forget the name of the city, which is annoying. But it's that idea that he was actually trying to create a new, fresh, modern city which would go on his CV mm-hmm. and he'd go further up the Communist Party chain of command. But to do that, you know, it was just absolute demolition, moving people out without a moment's notice, demolishing their houses and creating fresh land for development. But, you know, the reason I brought it up and the reason it was relating to our discussion about Iran is because I actually think my enduring impression from that was family members trying to game the system, trying to game the compensation system, because especially in rural areas, which we'll get on to, I had relatives who were building on their rubbish houses so that they can claim, oh my God, my house is not just a one single story thing. My house is three stories and therefore you have to pay me this amount of compensation mm-hmm. in order to move me into a nicer city flat. So that was always kind of an intriguing part of things that they weren't necessarily sad about their old houses being demolished if it meant that they could actually you know profiteer a little bit out of it <laughs> it's, in, it's interesting there's very little nostalgia in china right i mean it's, it's creeping in now with the upper classes and the more affluent middle classes looking back on what maybe they've lost which is understandable but in general there's that idea that it's about progress it's about development it's about betterment it's about china's future so people are willing to have their own house knocked down if it maybe improves their lot. And that means, as you say, whether it's gaming the system or whether it's just the only way they can make money, they will be prepared to sell their family home. But you can, you can lose out on it because some people who've built you know, very rickety second extension, third yeah. extension, you know, third stories on their houses, and then the government will say, well, actually, we've changed our mind, we're not going to develop this village anymore. Right. So you're left with having lost all of your savings, built this really you know, crappy kind of extension, and you're left in penury with no possibility of maybe selling it on. Yeah. So you're still under the whim of, of government development rules. Yeah, and I want to talk about that kind of middle ground because it's something that you've looked into a lot. I've watched a film that you made shortlisted for an award called Edgetown. 
Village town, Chefang, yeah. Chefang, which is based on a town on the edge of a city called Suzhou, which is where you teach when you are in China. Can you tell us about the story of Chefang? Why was it interesting to tell? Yeah, well, it's interesting. It came out of, because I teach architecture, so it came out of some work we were doing with some students locally. But effectively, lots of those migrant workers who are part and parcel of more city developments, I mean, yeah. some cities are... 50%, 60% migrant workers. But Suzhou is slightly less. But there's large areas now where the government is expanding and moving out was the suburbs. Yes, the mm-hmm. suburbs have taken hold in China. And so they need, they need the land. So there's a certain area, Chifong area of Suzhou, which is quite large, but one specific area had you know, a large group of, of villagers living there in a pretty rubbish condition houses. Yeah. They were then told that they were going to be knocked down and redeveloped. They were delighted they were going to make that money. What actually happened was one third were knocked down mm-hmm. and they got houses. They got their 21st story buildings. The second were knocked down, but then they were told that they weren't going to develop. Therefore, they had their house knocked down and no compensation. Wow. And the third, you know, one third of that village wasn't knocked down. So they were left in their own crappy conditions. So we did, the, the film was about trying to understand how they see the future in the past. And of course, I mean, maybe a bit cliched, but obviously the people who had those new houses, thought the government was great and the future was wonderful. Those people who were living now in squalor were looking back to the past for some security from the state and thought that what was actually happening was a, was a scandal. So it's actually quite divisive, the whole mm. demolition progress thing, because it just depends where you are on the chain. So it's a, it's a bit of a gamble as to whether you succeed in this. And what particularly struck me was the fact that throughout these Panning's footage that you had, which was really gorgeous, you had the urban Suzhou in the background, you had these high rises, you know, in the distance on the horizon, yeah, yeah. and then these kind of half broken houses, dirty rivers and all that sort of stuff in the foreground. Yeah. So they were within touching distance of urban life, but they weren't there because of... I guess bureaucracy and delays in precisely, but a lot of those people still will be working in the city. Right, you know what I mean. So that's the the main. Yeah, source and, of but the, and and Chervan was made worse because you had demolished two thirds of it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was a real. It was a real. You know, it's, it was, it's, it's a, I went back there maybe three years ago. The last time I saw it, and it's exactly the same condition. Really? Uh, yeah, it's a terrible, terrible story. And but what, but it's replicated. You know, hundreds of cities all over the. Country. Yeah, so I was just going to ask you, how representative is that? Because we're talking about how rapid China's urbanization has been. I myself have seen villages that, you know, I visited when I was younger turn into suburbs of the city. But what happens with those places that aren't turned into that? Why are they not turned into that? Or is it just very myriad reasons? And Well, you know, some places succeed and some places yeah. fail. Uh, yeah. It's just life, isn't it? I mean, the strategy of the government for the last... 40 years, let's say, has been to urbanise, yes, to develop, to make China into a modern dynamic economy. And it succeeded that. The rate of urbanisation, which is a signal factor of progress, has been reasonably successful. Now, to do that, they've built lots of cities, not as many as we suspect, because they've actually taken old cities and they've expanded them rather than Mm. actually building new in the middle of nowhere. But ultimately, they haven't been brilliant cities. You know, the ambition has been to build, but not build quality. So, again, I hate to kind of reflect back on the post-war generation, but there was those blocks that were built after the war when we realised they were a bit naff in the 1960s, 70s, we knocked them down and built a bit more quality. That immediacy, that necessity to build, that kind of engineering mindset, no no architecture was involved, it was an engineering project, to build a better China resulted in cities which were a little bit naff, to say the least, yes? So what's happening in the last 10 years, let's say, architecture has started to creep into the conversation and actually having a quality urban environment rather than just 
urbanity for the sake of it. And what makes a good quality city then? <laughs> well, you know, things like parks maybe, mm-hmm. things like uh, decent places to walk, nice streets, places to sit down, but also cultural venues and uh, you know universities, so you have a mix of generations, a bit of old, old world and a bit of new world. So that hasn't really been the case. I mean, China, if you go to more cities in China, there aren't any parks. You can probably find a couple in Shanghai dating back 100 years. But now, like Beijing... New is, parks are very rare. New parks, yeah. I mean, you know, just somewhere to sit and walk yeah. and breathe cleaner air. So in, in Beijing, they have a plan to implement probably like 10 central parks, New York central parks, that scale oh, of wow, development okay. within Beijing. Now, again, that is going to require knocking some buildings mm. down. But think back to how Central Park was built, right? They knocked lots of buildings down mm-hmm. to build Central Park. So it's just, you know, history repeating itself, but on a much grander scale and a much more authoritarian scale and possibly faster. So you think that there has been a reconsidering of what makes a good city in more recent years, you said, in the last 10 years? Yeah, I mean, what, what makes a good city for China was, you know, a target was mm-hmm. a percentage. You know, we have to hit 50%. We have to hit 60% by 2020 about, you know, our, our goals of, you know, moderately prosperous society and all the rest of it. So these are all targets. It's a, you mentioned eco-cities. Eco-cities, yeah. what do they mean even, right? They just mean nicer cities than what they were before because you actually have some trees in them, you know? So I think that these things are just almost bureaucratically engineered definitions about what a good city might be. They're tick-boxed. You can literally go to cities in China and they will have maybe 28 quality agendas, key performance indicators (laughs) that you check off to say what is a good city. You sound quite disparaging about that. You do not think that that is a tick-box exercise? Well, you can if you want to, but, you know, I did a research exercise where I compared Tianjin Eco-City, which is a ready-made Eco-City, whatever that might mean, and I compared it to London, and on all the tick boxes, London performs better. So you could then say, London is therefore an Mm. Eco-City. That would be nonsense, wouldn't it? Because I don't think it is on any sense. And Eco-City, is that something that the CCP itself has been talking about? Is that like a government target as well? Yeah, because China isn't a fool, or Chinese government aren't fools. They recognise that if you want to be a player on the world you have to you know if you want to have investment mm. you want to make a city which is a playground for kind of businessmen who want, maybe want to go to the cinema and yeah. sit, in, sit in the park yeah, and have a coffee so Starbucks you know was invited in so you know you have all of this stuff so, so China realises that if you want to sell yourself as a real global player because for 40 years and beyond, China has been seen as a pariah, right? A congested, polluted, disgusting Mm -hmm. place to be, yeah, with open sewers. Now, if you can just make that better, and if you can promote yourself as a sponge city, a city which kind of understands water recycling, or a reclamation city, or a green city, or an environmental city, you get a certificate, which then means that the person who's in charge of the government policy at that level will get a promotion, but also your city will get investment and you will be able to kind of touch yourself on the world stage. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in some ways, what they're doing is making nicer cities. And I'm all in favour of that, yeah, obviously, yeah. yes. But I think that the bureaucratisation and the technical approach to it is a little bit naff. It's classic. <laughs> yeah, but it's, but it's seen in the West... You know, people in the West respect it because I think people in the West are becoming more and more technocratic and responsive to bureaucratic tick boxes. And do you think, because I think in the West people have this image, especially of Beijing, of being so polluted. You know, air pollution is probably one of the first things that people think of when they think of Beijing. Mm -hmm. Is that getting any better in Beijing and elsewhere in China? Is urban pollution getting any better? 
Well, again, depends who you read. Uh, I mean, <laughs> Lanzhou, when I first went to uh, China, I went to Lanzhou because it was in The Economist magazine as the most polluted city in the world. And I went there and I thought, well, I'm from South Wales, you know, as a child, and this is nothing on what I had to go through. <laughs> uh, and it was a very pleasant city. But, you know, it depends on the weather conditions and all the rest mm. of it. What they've done in Lanzhou, which is really interesting, well, if you don't mind me saying so, is that they've built Lanzhou New City, okay. which is, you know... 50 miles outside Lanzhou Old Town. And to build Lanzhou New City, which is now an equal city, by the way, mm. they have taken the tops off 400 mountains, okay? Which you wouldn't necessarily think is an ecological kind mm. of um, development uh, policy. But take the tops off the mountains, fill the valleys with the tops of the mountains, if you can imagine it, yes? Yeah, so yeah. zero-sum gain, you create a plateau, wow. which they then build a city on. Now that has created fantastic new air flows which were prior to that were disturbed by the mountains so the air wasn't flowing through uh-huh. Lanzhou Old Town so now you've got a fantastic kind of breezes which blow away the pollution of Lanzhou Old Town further down the chain somewhere uh, <laughs> not we, our problem we, anymore. we don't talk about that <laughs> so Lanzhou is now an eco city Lanzhou Old is an eco city so you know you think what does it all mean, you know? So, uh, but Lanzhou itself is still a nice city. But I quite like the old industrial cities. I quite like a sense of that kind of history. And, the, mm-hmm. you know, you, you meet some very interesting people in those places. I think history is something that is so hard to come by in China sometimes. It's at once a very ancient country, objectively mm. speaking. But then when you walk through a city like London, you feel so much more history when you walk through it than when you walk through objectively very ancient cities like Nanjing or Beijing. Why is that? Is that because of the rapid urbanisation that has happened? Well, there's that. I mean, you know, every city has got a central business district. And actually, in architectural terms, very few people know what a central business district is. When mm. I was living in China, I was saying it all the time because I thought it was a thing. And then when you go to America or UK, nobody knows what it is. Right. But So they, they create these kind of huge new dynamic business areas. But it's also the fact that, you know, Britain has plaques and they tell you all about the history and mm. people go on history walks. In China, there's a very interesting difference in mentality. You probably recognize it, which is that in the West, you know, we want authenticity of our historical mm. sites to be crumbling Uh, wrecks you know if you go to a castle you want to see the castle as it was you know 500 years ago in china you can go to a thousand year old temple Mm. and you look at this beautiful timber tracery and you think that can't possibly (laughs) that can't possibly not have rotted right and of course it was replaced last week and they replaced it every every 10 years so then the essence of the building is the form the shape the material which is authentic for China, for us, that would be inauthentic, that would be Disneyfied. So there's a very interesting kind of turnaround. I don't know what you think about this. Do you think that trend is changing? Because I feel like for people who are getting rich at first, it's, as you said, you know, the people in Chefan, for example, who are aspiring to a high-rise block. But then there are also people in the middle and upper classes now living in these high-rise blocks who are aspiring to a more authentic, down-to-earth life. Obviously, they're not aspiring to poverty, (laughs) and they're definitely romanticising certain parts of rural living. But there's now this idea where you get to a certain level of middle class and you think, actually, what I really want is not this kind of hyper-industrial, hyper-modern thing. I want a bit of history. Well, yeah, I mean, I think they look back on these things. There's, there's an example in Beijing, which I always use, so excuse me if I've said this before, but Beijing Postcards is a shop which sells, mm-hmm. you know, old imperial postcards. And when it opened up about 20 years ago, there were protests outside the shop of people saying, how dare you remind us of our squalor and our mm. past and our imperial traditions, right? We're a new, modern, dynamic yeah. society. Within about seven years, 
his shop was full of people buying those postcards because people recognised within Beijing areas with hutongs being demolished, people were losing sense of family history, and mm. they went back to be reminded. So, you know, it's a, it's a natural process. It just happens a little bit faster and a little bit more uncertain. But if you're, you know, if you're fairly wealthy in China, you may want to live on a, you know, a grand... Penthouse somewhere. Penthouse, <laughs> penthouse is the word I was looking for. Penthouse <laughs> on the top floor. But normally you probably also want to have a second house or yeah. maybe go and live I mean, in the countryside. Yeah. No one's going to be swapping their penthouse. Exactly, exactly. So it's about, it's about, it's about clean air. It's about play spaces for your kids. And that's where places like Chang'an New Town outside mm-hmm. Beijing, that was one of uh, President Xi Jinping's big ideas was to create this whole new eco-city again outside of Beijing where you could basically take people to have a much better quality of life. Right. So so you know, the parks and the facilities and the cultural centres are all there ready-made for you. And do you think we're seeing a turning point in the urbanisation process? We've talked about it happening so rapidly. One thing that comes to mind for me is the fact that China's population might be peaking very, very soon, if not already. And so they won't need as much density of residential areas. But you've also yourself looked at rural reconstruction yeah. in, in the countryside. Well, I mean, all better off with COVID at the moment and the economic recession. So that, you know, the, the trends may be distorted by what's actually now happening. But yeah, I mean, there's a there was a push to put a maximum limit on Beijing and Shanghai's population. So lots of people were thrown out. Some to Xiong'an to populate it, but it was many, many sent back to their villages. And to do that, you know, you've had to create a certain sense of place within the villages. Mm. So the villages were very often those deserted places where people migrated from and you were left. You know, so the young adult fit males went to work in Shenzhen and left these villages with like 60-year-old grandparents and five-year-old children. So it was a fairly mm. I mean, a terrible situation psychologically for lots of, lots of reasons. And there were lots of problems there. So to encourage people to stay, you have to give them reasons. So there's a new rural revitalization program which has been going on, well, it's been going on for 15 years, but really in the last five, really to kind of take in a hold to encourage business, to encourage agriculture for self-sufficiency reasons, mm-hmm. post-COVID and post-emergency, but really to kind of give a sense of that it's worth staying behind, it's not worth moving, yes? And given that, you know, Shenzhen, especially COVID, lots of people in the last last migration when they went to Shenzhen around Guangzhou, they found that there weren't those jobs for them mm-hmm. and they were left on the streets. They went straight back where they came from and decided to make a job of it back home. So there's a lot of kind of internal tensions and, and dynamics at play but the rural revitalization movement is then enhanced by the fact that architects are now moving from building these kind of super-duper high-rise buildings in the urban centers and are now being given commissions to build you know, super-duper low-rise but architecturally impressive tofu factories and you know, wine distilleries and goodness knows what in the, in the village regions or paper museums or whatever it might be. Yes? So it's all about you know, that kind of intangible cultural heritage. It's all about local economic development and dynamics. And it's also about self-sufficiency of agricultural production. So no architect really gets a commission privately outside the urban area. These are very much state-funded mm backhanders, you know, encouraging architects now to go into the rural areas. Sounds very Maoist, you know, go back to the countryside and rebuild. But, you know, it has a, it has a cachet. Well, how effective are these top-down diktats when it comes to this? Because as you were talking, I remembered one article that you'd previously written about this award-winning library, which looked amazing on the pictures. But when you went to visit, it was actually just essentially cement blocks <laughs> and, um, so it had been refurbished to look like the pictures, but it had just then be stripped because nobody was using it. Is that yeah. right? Yeah, there's lots of that about. Yeah, I mean, look. Yeah. And that won prizes, but it wasn't actually functional. 
Yeah, well, but that's like Chinese development, isn't it? You know, so I was always impressed by the fact that uh, whereas I remember John Prescott way back when, when he said we were going to build four and a half million new houses mm. in 20 years, China built four and a half million new houses in 2016 in six months, right? And you think, amazing, that's what you yeah. want, right? But of course, they've never worked out where they should be. Mm. It's, an, it's a percentage allocation. So you tell a city you will have you know, 500,000 houses, you never work out whether they should be family houses or single-person houses. The demographic shift is never taken into consideration. And they're also being now built by developers who are going through the biggest crisis in China's history with a complete slump, uh, 85% slump, you know. So people are now refusing to pay their mortgages. So what you find is the quality of build is as rubbish as ever it was. That's been the case for the last 30 years, that first of all, you don't necessarily have the labor force Mm. to do impressive buildings. I'm always still impressed when you look to Shanghai, Beijing, and you see high-rise buildings. Where do they get those workers from, right? They were trained in short order. Six months ago, they were farmers, right? Then they're given a piece of reinforcing rod and told to climb up. You're making me a bit nervous about standing in these buildings. Well, (laughs) I think that's what you should be. I'd give them another 10 years before a couple of them start to crumble. But I think that there's shoddiness is is going to build into the system. Mm-hmm. Um, as well as into the kind of way that maybe well, on the ground. Well, there's a phrase for it work. in Chinese as well, isn't there? Dofu dag you know, yeah, yeah, tofu exactly. dregs construction. As exactly. in, you know, it's about, about as consolidated as tofu is. Yeah, I mean, look, I'm over <laughs> egging it because they've, they've improved over the last kind of, of 10 years, not, not longer. And, you know, construction standards are important. And in some ways, they are moving to use different materials. So that concrete statistic I gave earlier is now being downplayed. People are moving into timber, which mm-hmm. which actually was a was a material that was frowned upon in China, partly because you know the old Great Leap Forward, when so much timber was just destroyed and burnt and chopped down. Now people want to protect it. Also, there's a tree planting every year, as you know, to keep the desertification back mm-hmm. in China. So trees, you know, don't have the same sense of utility mm. in China as they do in the West. You know, we chop it down, we use it. In China, there's a bit more maybe Taoist respect, but generally there's a certain sense that we've been through that when we chopped it all down and all, all hell broke loose. But gradually, 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 people are beginning to realise that timber actually is a useful material, yeah. you know, light and cheap and, and easy to, to construct with. And is there has there been a return to traditional aesthetics as well? Because would I be right in stipulating that China went through a period where Western aesthetics were seen as the top tier <laughs> of um, how a building should should look? Has there been a return to that? Because we see it in other areas, for example, in fashion or in food. You know, there's this greater, and some people call this nationalism in a pejorative way, but it's certainly just a greater confidence in your own traditional culture. Has that been coming back in the aesthetics of architecture as well? Absolutely, absolutely. Even in the most modernist buildings, Mai Yansong, who's an architect who runs a company called MAD, M-A-D, one of the very few architects who've actually worked abroad, He's built some very, very tall skyscrapers in uh, central Beijing, and he calls it reflective of the of the Shan Shui kind of um, ink drawings. I can't see it myself, but um, <laughs> but you can see that there's a harking back. There's almost a desperation by some people yes. to situate themselves in that kind of uh, new nationalism. And it's you know fair enough. It's going away from pitched roofs and low scale. But there is a sense that this is the new dynamic of how you recreate a new China. Do you know what I mean? So I do think that there is something possibly 
dodgy about mm. it. Okay, what, what, what do you think is dodgy about it? <laughs> well, well, I mean, however we want to situate ourselves in the discussion on nationalism, I think that yeah. the idea of China opening up, 78, mm. all the way through to about 2011, when before Xi Jinping came in, that idea that they were looking to the West, they were engaging with the West, and subsequently, maybe not since 2011, but since about 2015, there's been a much more of a closing down mm. and focusing back in on China. Mm. And that goes hand in hand with the production for its own use. What's that called? Self-sufficiency. But generally, that idea about China has to defend itself. China yeah. has to identify with itself. China has to build a strong nation, which I think is possibly positive because that's the way that China will develop, because it yeah. is one of the most dynamic economies in the world. But there is a negative connotation to it. And yeah. building up those kind of cultural norms of looking back to history to recreate you know images of the future is not necessarily the most progressive one I don't think yeah interesting I think it's always a balance because I think sometimes in the last hundred years has been the shame associated with Chinese aesthetics you know we shouldn't be afraid of our hutons they are part of our culture and our history and that's something we should be very proud of but obviously you know <laughs> not this kind of certain kind of exceptionalism Chinese exceptionalism which is where no, it probably goes back, awry No exactly but if you look back in the 1920s which is really really interesting in as much as after the you know after the revolution and after the warring period and all the rest of it in the 19. 19- 10s, 1920s, you had this thing which actually never happened in any other country, which is that you had Chinese architects who were told or, or who were self-believing in the idea that they were going to build a new China, right? But that new China was going to be part of a global, mm. you know, because they just got rid of the empire, yes? So they were kind of part of a world model. And if you remember those kind of uh, protests in the 1920s uh, for westernization and democracy, yeah? So there you have this kind of tension where architects who are on one hand building modernist mm. buildings, I mean, clear European modernist buildings, because some of them are trained in the West, and their next commission would be a traditional Chinese hat building uh, with tiles and all the rest of it. And the architects were hand-in-hand hand building different oeuvres, mm. as we say, which never happens in this country. You know, you, you go down the one route or you go down another one. But they were playing off the idea about what does it mean for China to be a new modern society? Is it joining the world or is it you know, going back and creating our, a new China, a new Chinese heritage based on, on tradition? That conversation was a really dynamic one in mm. the 1920s, ended in... Or hell breaking loose, effectively. But today, that discussion isn't really being had out. Okay, you're not seeing that. No, in the same way, I don't see. I don't see the conversation being had out between why are we rejecting the urban and the urbanisation, which mm. I'm a big fan of. I'm not a big fan of living in a village, <laughs> coming from South Wales. Uh, you know, you leave there to go somewhere good. Uh, but but architects are very very strongly kind of rejecting the urban, seeing it as harmful, environmental damaging, mm. and all the rest. Of it. All that rhetoric from the Western environmental canon is catching on, and people are now talking about going back and building in bamboo and mud and and twigs in the villages and that I think that's right. symbolically kind of quite a dodgy you've, move. you've looked at the new generation of architects in China you've written a book about female architects yeah. um, in China many of them presumably are going to have been educated in the West has that Western education not made them have that dynamism that you're talking about from the 1920s yeah but you know it's like you know you can be as progressive and democratic and dynamic in the west and ch- chatting down the pub while you're over in london and as soon as you go back to china and you get your state commissions mm. and you're told what to do you don't rock the boat mm. and there's rules and regulations which you can't kind of avoid so people express themselves maybe in some aesthetic way mm. but the underlying themes and the essence of what they're building is very much related to what china state requires mm. so yeah it's a shame there's a lot of 
people now in China who are not going to the West to be educated. Obviously, mm. for the last two and a half years, they, many of them haven't been able to go to the West. But there's lots of kind of interesting new developments. I, I won't, you know, I, I don't want to sound as if I'm criticizing what's going on in China because I'm a big fan of Chinese people, not the state. But I think that, you know, so there's an interesting kind of play with history and dynamics. But I think, like I say, the essence is particularly wrong. What I'd like to see is more people coming to the West and sharing those ideas, mm. cultural exchange, which works both ways, fortunately, and taking it back and actually kind of really kind of transforming the way that urban landscape is, is created in China. Unfortunately, lots of people come into the West and they're learning all those terrible lessons of reduce, reuse, recycle, <laughs> environment, uh, censorship, you know. I mean, the Chinese state must be loving it. All those students going back saying, I've just come from the West and we're banning books and we're censoring, you know, whatever. It, it must warm their cockles. Well, that's a nice note to end on, Austin. <laughs> Thank you so much Thank for joining Chinese much. Whispers. Thanks very much, Cindy. Always a pleasure. Thanks for listening. And if you like what we do here, you might be interested in the Chinese Whispers newsletter that I will be launching in the near future. Sign up for free at spectator.co.uk forward slash whispers and you'll be getting regular updates from me on the most interesting political and cultural news from China, as well as, of course, a smattering of history. That's spectator.co.uk forward slash whispers.